Good morning, everyone. Um, I have the pleasure of reading our central text, uh, which is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Devin. Uh, My name is Chaz. Good morning. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I know people are making their way back from children's ministry. So why don't we just pray? We've got a great passage in front of us. So, Lord, there's nothing any man can get up here uh, and say that can transform hearts. It's your word and it's your spirit. And it's us collectively being here with the Holy Spirit on us with one voice praising your name. And so as this word this morning uh, challenges us, it, it pierces, I pray it would lead us to you, Lord, your, the, your grace. And Lord, help us just to put one step in front of the other and continue this very important work of striving for unity is in, in the form of loving people who are so very different from us. And that's what we're doing this morning. And so may your spirit uh, shine this morning. May you be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, has anybody seen the 2017 film Darkest Hour, Winston Churchill? It's a fantastic film if you've not seen it. Um, and it really depicts the earliest days of Winston Churchill's regime. Uh, In fact, this is around the time when Nazi Germany was advancing through Western Europe. So all this is happening early in his tenure, and there's a lot of members of his cabinet that are really pressuring him to sign a peace deal with Adolf Hitler. And there's a million stirring scenes uh, in the film, but there's one I really love. Churchill boards the London Underground, the afternoon train, when the everyday folk are making their way home, and it's really funny. I mean, he just, he takes a seat among the people, and they're just shocked. They don't know what to make of the fact their prime minister's right there. And he breaks the the tension by lighting a match and doing his cigar, and he just, he poses this question, because what Churchill wants to get across is, what's the mood of the people, and are they up for the fight? And so he asks him, he says, what if I put it to all of you that we might... If we ask nicely, give every favorable terms to Mr. Hitler, if we enter into peace deal with him right now, what would you say to that? And with a resounding, never, never, it just repeats uh, on the train. But there's a voice that's soared above all of them, and it's this little girl, and it's a really touching scene. She's the last one speaking, she's never, and he comes up to her, and he says, oh, never. Oh, you will never give up, will you? 
And she looks right into her prime minister's eyes and with poise and resolve says, never. And with that, really, he made the decision to wage war, to go fight. Because as the saying goes, isn't it true? There are some things in this world worth fighting for. The challenge is what we're facing right now is we take that emotion. If you've seen this film, we take that into everything today, don't we? The problem right now we face is everything is worth fighting for. Every hill must be taken, defended, died on. Never, you should never take my parking spot. That's mine. We're willing to wage war for our kids when they, you know, something happens at school. Online, our rhetoric, our discourse. We're at each other's throats, at least culturally speaking. Everything is worth fighting for. But Jesus in his prayer, we mentioned this two weeks ago, on the eve of his crucifixion, this is a very important note. Jesus is praying for you and me and his disciples across the span of millennia. And he says, here's what I'm praying for. That they may all be one. Because that's what we are. Father, you and me and I in you, that they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you, he didn't say, build big churches with great amenities. He didn't say, you all share everything in common and you're all the same people. He didn't say you would have political power and influence. He said what? If you love one another, that first order of all things, you are united to him, that is, your, that is the basis of your unity to people who are so different. What Jesus was saying is this. The believability of the gospel message is one billion percent tied in the beauty of our relationships. Two weeks ago, we had a sermon titled Defiant Unity. Last week, it was Defiant Humility. And now we see, really, it's Defiant Unity Part 2. But sequels are usually bad, so I'm not calling it Defiant Unity Part 2. Uh, it's defiant witness, because this is what literally Jesus said, if you actually want to change the world, it's actually this. So working out our unity with fear and trembling, shining as lights, that's plural for a reason, and God working in us for his good pleasure. So working out our unity, shining as lights, and God is working in us for his good pleasure. So let's just jump right in, and I want to point out this elephant in the room, because if you are seeking Christianity or exploring it, or if you've been a Christian for four or five decades, there's a lot of confusion with the presence uh, of this word right here, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That really seems to fly in the face, uh, doesn't it, right? Of everything we think we understand about the gospel, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The gospel is about grace, isn't it, right? Now, one of the things that's really important for us to note is, I just want to say this out of the gate, okay? It's really important to pay attention to uh, prepositions here. Paul, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, work for your own salvation with fear and trembling. That, cha- that would change the entire meaning of it. He's saying, work out the implications of a reality that is true about you. You are a saved people. That is your new reality. Now, I just got to give you a warning. Does everybody have coffee with you this morning? Okay, good. Take a sip. Take a big sip. 
Stat, stretch or whatever. This is that point when preachers, and anybody who's preached before, you know what I'm talking about. Like people start to put their heads on their spouse's shoulder, you know, and you know you're like it's getting bad. But I'm going to run that entire risk right now. We're going to get in the weeds. You ready to get into the weeds? Take another sip because you're going to need it, okay? There's just some high nosebleed theology we've got to understand in order to apply it. And the first thing is this. One of the reasons we misunderstand this verse is we don't really actually understand the word salvation. What do we say here in the Bible Belt? Someone's asking you, are you a Christian? They're not asking you, are you a Christian? They're asking you, have you been what? That's right. And you know what? They might also say, and I got saved. I wrote it in my Bible. It's January 18th, 1981 at church camp, okay? I'm not saying that's anything wrong with that. But brace yourself, you're going to think I'm an absolute heretic for here right now in just a second. We have a lot of confusion, and part of that is this. The Apostle Paul uses this word, told you we're in the weeds, 18 times in the New Testament. Do you know that only four times when he uses his words, he's talking about something in the past? Paul doesn't really say we have been saved. He says that four times. But 14 times, Paul is talking about something in the future, okay? Take another sip. You're going to need it. One more sip. Part of the reason is this. We make these two words the same often, okay? When someone says, I've been saved, what they really mean to say is, I've been justified. I'm not advocating that we need to say that. But what we're saying is justification is something that did happen in the past. Jesus lived the life for you that you can't live, and he died the death for your sins. You get both. When you receive Christ by faith, you get his righteous record and you get a clean slate. That is something that has happened in the past. But see, salvation isn't just something that has happened in the past. There's a lot yet to come. You will not experience the fullness of salvation until when Jesus rides in on a white horse. And if he did this morning, you would believe everything I'm saying right now. The fullness of salvation is still not fully experienced if you're a Christian. You haven't experienced all of salvation yet. You will when you die and you step into that kingdom and you breathe kingdom air and you breathe in the air that is devoid of evil. It doesn't even exist anymore. There's no sin. There's no death. It's gone. What does any of this have to do with unity? I didn't really see this until I really did a deep dive and understand that every scholar is pointing out Paul is still talking about unity here. And you might be thinking, what do you mean? He's trying to reach back into the past of Israel's history. Okay? And I'm just going to show you a map. Because the truth is, God's people at one point lived here in Egypt and they needed to be what? Saved. They were enslaved to Pharaoh. And what did God do? He saved them. And right here in the Red Sea, wherever that happened, we don't exactly know. It could have been here, could have been here. I don't know. But what did God do? He destroyed their enemies. Pharaoh died. The army died. But when they got into the desert, were they saved? Yes, from that. But that's not the end of God's full story of salvation. God would be with them in the desert, but he's not leaving them here, is he? God's plan of salvation has been, I'm going to take you up here into this land, and in this land, I'm going to be your people. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, but also something else. 
you're going to be this, these people that's going to shine like a light to all of planet Earth of my plan for salvation. So I saved you, but it's not just all about you, Israel. You have now a responsibility to take this story out to the rest of the world so they all come in and are rescued. But what happened? <laughs> Read the Old Testament. How did these people of the past work out their salvation? How did they work it out? Do you need another sip of coffee? Do one more. Come on, I want to see you do it. How did they work out their salvation? Well, read anything in there and we see these words. That's what they were called to do. But you get into this and what do you see? They're out in the desert and they're like, I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Yeah, why can't we have some meat? Oh, yes, remember those days in Egypt? Back when we had nothing but meat pots to eat from the leeks, the onions? This is worse than it was before. And what's with it? You can laugh, okay? It's a one-man show. I'm trying to keep you awake in the weeds, okay? What's with this Moses guy? He looks just like Charlton Heston. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> Let's get rid of him. And then they get to Israel, and were they a light to the nations? No, they were not. Did they strive for unity? Well, we have this whole story about a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, don't we? We have this whole story about they're just really concerned about their own personal prosperity and comfort and national security. They failed at the task, didn't they? They failed. And what is Paul trying to make? He's trying to tell you, folks, you're Israel today. The story hasn't finished. God's still working this plan out. And rather working through a nation, he's working through the local church. Because what did Jesus do for you? He saved you from slavery. Everything Jesus says about sin, it's not freedom, it's slavery. You're not free unless what? The sun sets you free. And on the cross, that's like the Red Sea. You killed your enemy. Sin. But guess what? We're not fully home yet. We are, as Christians, today, in 2023, in the desert. That is the truth. That is how the New Testament speaks of us. And like our forefathers, we forget the story. We could look at the past, but we also got to look at where we're headed and who's with us right now in the desert. He's with us. He is. See, take this in for a second. The, Paul believes in this so confidently that Jesus is going to take us home to his fullness of his kingdom one day. Heaven's going to come to earth. He so believes in the future aspect of salvation that he calls his people who are living in one of the most important Roman citizen, uh, uh, cities, Philippi. What does he call them? Citizens of heaven. He believes in this plan of salvation is not just in the past, it's also in the future that he's not even willing to take a moniker for human beings other than this. The first verse in Philippians, how did he call people that he went to church with, even annoying people? What did he call them? None of you are annoying, but I'm just saying in theory, okay? What did he call them? Saints. He's in the first century, not calling them Philippians, he's calling them citizens of heaven, and he's calling all these people, even the ones who fight with one another, saints. That's the moniker that he takes on. 
So what does this mean? One of the things that you and I need to understand about working out our salvation with fear and trembling is Paul was not writing to individual people. We read it. We read it now today in our private time. And yes, Paul would say, it's good to pray privately. It is good to read your Bible. It is good to fast. It's good to seek solitude. But Paul is writing to people. And what he's saying is this. Do you want to know what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And it's not by yourself. Can't be. Paul is saying, this is the hard work of working out the truth of your salvation. You do it with people. This is the kind of work you bring your Stanley to. Not the ones with the cute straw. I'm talking about the, the ones that your grandfather put his lunch in and was in the back of his truck. Hard. You didn't get that. I'm sorry. I thought it was funny when I wrote it. But anyway, uh, all right. Moving on. Point is, it's hard work. Hard, hard work work. Let's get out of the clouds and land and get on the earth at zero feet above sea level and try to apply this. Paul, again, is reaching into the past. And one other aspect of the past he reaches into is what happened after the desert. Way later, Isaiah the prophet, he's warning the people who failed to be a light to the nations. Look at the language he says. He's discouraged. He says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. But you've got to be a light. Got to be a light. You've got to seek unity. Seeking unity can feel like a lost cause. It is some of the hardest work you'll ever do in your life. It's, it can, but, you know, Winston Churchill also said in that scene, lost causes are the ones most worth fighting for. And that's why Paul, he's using this language and he's, he's repeating. He's a member. He's a Jewish scholar. This is on purpose. He is saying the same words Isaiah did because what's he trying to say? What Israel failed to do, the local church, Grace Blue Ridge, is literally called to do what they failed to do millennia and millennia ago. Striving for unity is not in vain. I can't tell me how many conferences I've been to that, you know, and this was not my experience at our retreat this week, but it's like, you don't want to change the world, you want to change the world, we'll do these 10 things. Here's the new method, here's this, here's that. And, you know, you need to rework your mission statement to, you know, we are uh, a synergistic missional community, exalting name, you know, something like that, right? And it's going to change the world. But if the church, the church has the power to bring heaven to earth, to answer the Lord's prayer. And how are you going to do it? We go back to what Jesus prayed for. How? That they may be one, that they may love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So I'm going to give you three practical things that I think can help all of us here to change the world. Pretty big, hairy idea, don't you think? You ready? First one. Show up. <laughs> Show up. Did you know that Jesus came to church today? Jesus came to church today. 
Do you know how I know that? Because the attendance looks greater than two from up here. Uh, and he said, he has literally come. One of the ways we can show the world is the, by showing up for one another. Did you know that this past Wednesday, a light shone on the front pages of the New York Times? I want you to hear what I'm saying. A light for the gospel shone on the front page of the New York Times by a theologically orthodox teacher an author and professor who teaches at Wheaton College where Billy Graham went. This man got airtime in the New York Times on Wednesday. His name is Esau McCauley. And I just want to read this of what he wrote because he's talking about how he has held on to faith and how it really has been the local church. And he's speaking about his ancestors. Their name is the Bones family. And it's speaking about all that they faced. He says this. I think that for them, the black church didn't just provide an answer. It was the answer. Because in a world that proclaimed the enslaver was Lord of all, the idea that something more mighty ordered the tide of events swept up their lives was the hope they needed to survive the day. What if belief and the unrelenting love of God combined with trust in his, with his power to bend history was not a tool to make chains but to break them? Now later during the civil rights movement, the Bones, his family, did not march with Martin Luther King Jr. And that used to bother me because my Christian heroes were the people who defied governments to make this country a little more free. But the quiet faith of the bones seemed the very thing that my intellectual friends, they told me, you gotta set that aside. But what use is a religion that only produces character in history books? Was there not room for more ordinary glory? Civil rights activists, they inspired me, but the people who changed my life were regular members of my congregation. And I recognize that the viability of our faith could not be reduced to its usefulness as an agent of critique. It was not simply a tool to provide a religious veneer to policies I supported. The church, no, it was not less than a social revolution. It was more. Boom. All right. Christianity had a word to say on how the bones lived as individuals. It didn't make them complacent about white supremacy. It made anti-black racism survivable and surmountable, and at the same time, their faith that the small work of making them better people, that work of transforming the lives of individuals is the seedbed out of which mass movements grow. The organizers did not succeed because they had an army of studied philosophers that said the marchers reasoned that faith in the God who carried them when there was no revolution would do the same now that there was. And put differently, the confidence in God's ability to overcome slavery, segregation, and white supremacy flowed from, flowed from relief and his power to overcome sin and death. Elders and I were at a retreat this weekend, Sunday through Tuesday. And we're going to share the details of this vision retreat in November at our 14th anniversary. But I want to offer you a juicy tidbit. We have re reworked our mission statement. It's a page long and it's going to change the world. Okay. No, I, I didn't even know our mission statement, and I wrote the thing in 08 or 09 
and none of you know it, and that's okay, because that doesn't work. We've tried to make it really simple, and it's the heart of why we woke up out of bed and why I'm here. Why does Grace Blue Ridge exist? It's pretty simple. To see lives transformed through the gospel and community. Transforming lives through the gospel and community. And let me just eat a little humble pie. The reality is every preacher, I'll just be honest, we're all swinging the fences. I'm up here trying to blow the roof off every Sunday. I'm not going to lie. But I'll be honest with you. I'll just put it this way. I've listened to a thousand probably Tim Keller sermons in my lifetime. Not one of them has changed my life. Influenced me. Greatly inspired me. But the reality is, life change comes from the preaching of the word over time. But community, you can't change without community. Without community. You cannot believe this message of the gospel until you see it lived in the light. Oh, now I'm trying to laser at you, okay? <laughs> You're not going to believe it until you see it lived out. And all, are you all blind now? Okay. You can't believe it. I can't believe it unless you show up and keep doing the hard work. Esau McCauley, think about it. A light showed up in the New York Times. Where did that begin? It began in people showing up in the vestibule of an unair-conditioned rural church. It showed up when people at that church reasoned together. They prayed together. They wept together. They lamented injustices together. They disagreed together. They showed up and brought food to the new mother. They sewed onesies for the new mother. They sang together. They went to church picnics together. People had to say words like this, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I hurt you. People had to say words like this, I forgive you. Water under the bridge. But the fruit of that work that looks so unsexy and unglorious showed up on the pages of the New York Times this week. You don't think that matters? I hope that helped you. Number two, in the words of former coaches of mine, if it doesn't hurt, you ain't doing it right. <laughs> if that doesn't hurt, you ain't doing it right. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you, okay? Yes, read your Bible. Pray, but listen, I, I run quite a bit during the week, and I lift weights, but I could go do some of y'all's workouts that you do, and if I did them, I wouldn't be able to walk the rest of the week. Why? Because I don't use every muscle. And the reality is, even by ourselves, we, ha we have all these spiritual muscles, and do you know that, I'm just going to say this, the vast majority of our spiritual muscles are exercised in community. I think I'm at my best spiritually when I'm by myself. Why? Because I'm by myself. That's why. I don't have anybody who's challenging me in that moment, okay? I'm very cognizant that when we sing, and I thought it this morning, I'm singing with people who've sent me really harsh emails. Fact. I'm singing with people that I've disappointed. 
that I didn't say the right thing at the right time, I didn't respond quickly enough, I didn't have enough empathy. You're gonna get hurt. You're gonna. And we come together, and this is why it hurts a little bit, because you know why? You know what you're doing this morning? You're showing up to people who you don't have everything in common with, and that's okay. You're sitting next to people who don't share the same views on childhood education. You're, you're coming every Sunday to people that the world would say, you have every right to write that person off. You have every right to do that. You're showing up to people that you have to say, I'm sorry to. You're showing up to people to say, I forgive you. And you are showing up to people that have every right to write you off. But the hard work of doing this Nobody ever said changing the world would be easy, did they? This is the hard work that Jesus said, and it's going to hurt, which why, number three, we've all, every single one of us, myself definitely included, we got to do business with our woundedness. We do. You know, Gandhi said, you know, um, I love Christ, but I don't love your Christians. And in that sense, yeah, I get it. You know, that's an apologetic that love, the way we love is an apologetic to the world. But you know what? Jesus didn't say that, did he? He said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? No, love even, the, even your enemies. You love them. We have to do that hard work. And in God's infinite wisdom in the local church, you know what he has done? He has placed you in the closest of all proximities to people so radically different from you. And that's the point. To practice love. Yes, in the words of Alan Iverson, we're talking about practice. Faith without community results in stunted spiritual growth. It's very stunted. An actor does not prepare for a play only by looking in the mirror and practicing their lines. They have to learn cadence and timing with the other play actors. That's the way you get better, and that's how we do it. We work out our salvation with the bride, and that means there's going to be hurt and there will be wounds because there's no place like the local church that seems to exacerbate hurt feelings too. It's true. Because all of us come in here with our stories that are informed by our stories, and something happens. You walk in here on a Sunday and you sit down and nobody talks to you. And you know what? That really hurts. I hate it when that happens. I really don't like that. But guess what? That happens at every church on every country every Sunday. And it hurts and it's not okay. But yeah, what are you going to do in that moment? Maybe somebody didn't ignore Maybe you felt ignored in your small group. Maybe somebody said something annoying. Maybe you weren't asked to lead something. Maybe you keep showing up and you're, just, you're having a hard time connecting. Maybe every Sunday you walk in here and it's hard to see all these people married and with kids and you're just like, why am I single? Do I have a place here? And it hurts. And that's when we're most tempted to say, I don't think I actually need this. I have Jesus and I'm good. We must practice love. And that means we are striving for unity. And so what do we do? We practice love. We practice. We practice. We practice hospitality when you see somebody no one's talking to and you move over towards them. 
When you see somebody who's single and they're putting on a brave face, you invite them into their life because you know it's hard for them on Sunday. And you don't just hang out with the married folk. You go to somebody in vulnerability and instead of asking them to read your mind, which they never will do, you'll say to them vulnerably and say, did you, I want to bring something up. I know this is uncomfortable, but that sarcastic remark you made, that really hurt. And I need you to repent of that. Or maybe you say, you know, I feel ignored in the small group. Are there things that we can change in this? But we also have grace for one another. There is no perfect church. And with humility, we recognize that reality and do the hard work. Is it worth it? Well, only the best things, only the hardest things are always worth fighting for. Is unity a lost cause? Is it really worth fighting for? Can we truly shine like a city on a hill? Yes, we can. Because we are not alone, even when we're all together. I said it earlier, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is literally with us right now. Because you showed up. And he is at work in you. And he is at work in the person next to you. And the same work that handed down the faith to Esau Macaulay and countless millions others is that Jesus Christ came to this earth to save all of us. He has saved us. He is saving us. He has saved us from the ruling power of sin and death. He continues to be at work saving us, and he is taking us home for full salvation experience. And he is with us today because we are not home yet. We are in the desert. He is leading us all by his hand. And he's not just holding on to your hand. He's holding on to the people next to you. Some feeble hands are holding on to him, some more able. But he's holding on. And they're all held together. Because Jesus is taking us all to his homeland, his throne. And it's happening right now. You're changing the world right now. Because he's here in our midst. You're here. And you're hearing his word. And the people in the vestibule are going to change your life if you keep doing it. That's why Paul could say and speak such confident words this, that I'm sure of this, sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we just continue to give you thanks for this book, which has been incredibly practical and challenging and complicated. Help us to keep doing the hard work. There are many a days I feel like throwing in the towel and saying, I just want to be by myself. Help us, Lord. May we be more united each week through this work. And in a world, crooked and depraved generation, we could just use the words divided. A people unified is our apologetic that love one another. That's in your name we pray. Amen.